Hey everyone, it's me, Ben Blacker, your friend and host of this thing. Um, thanks so much for downloading the podcast. It's a really fun one. A chat with the uh, Matt Weiner and the showrunners and some of the writers of Mad Men, all about this most recent season, which comes out on DVD uh, this week, I believe, or next week. Um, so uh, before we get to it, I need to tell you about my real podcast, which is the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Um, I know a lot of you guys are familiar with it. You've told me on Twitter how much you enjoy it, which I love hearing. Uh, You can tweet me at Ben Blacker. Um, So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, The Thrilling Adventure Hour is currently running a Kickstarter campaign so that we can be more than just a stage show and a podcast. Um, We want to do a 136-page graphic novel with some amazing artists, including... Uh, my pal Ben Edlund and Jackson Public, who is the co-creator of the Venture Brothers, uh, and then a bunch of other amazing people. And it'll all be stories from the show and the world of the show, uh, like Beyond Belief and Sparks Nevada. Well, these things mean nothing to those of you who have not heard the podcast yet, so go check it out. Um, so we want to do a graphic novel. We're going to do this behind-the-scenes uh, scripted web series it's like we it's like the muppet show behind the scenes during the show uh, everyone's running around and everyone has their own little dramas going on it should be a lot of fun we really want to do that uh we want to do a concert film uh the show sold, sells out at largo every month so we want to be able to show people who can't get in and also people around the world we have fans in london and new york and everywhere chicago alaska Uh, We want to show these people what the show looks like. So we're going to record this concert film at Largo. um, And we're we're opening it up to the fans to help us uh, do these things. If you have enjoyed the Thrilling Adventure Hour or if you have enjoyed this podcast, the Nerdist Writers Panel, um, uh, I would implore you to take a moment and give back. Um, You know, go to kickstarter.com, search for Thrilling Adventure Hour, uh, it's the first thing that comes up. We are 27 days out at this point, um, and every little bit helps. You know, there are big rewards, there are small rewards, and the rewards are all really cool. You know, they're everything from the graphic novel itself or songs from the show to a Skype chat with uh, some writers who have appeared on this podcast uh, or a Skype chat with Josh Molina or, you know, drinks with uh, me and Acker, which I know sounds thrilling. Um, but you know, it's really cool. There's a lot of really neat stuff on there. Uh, everyone kind of came out of the woodwork to support us by offering rewards. So hopefully you can support us by giving to the Kickstarter. Again, go to kickstarter.com, search for thrilling adventure hour, or just go to our website, thrillingadventurehour.com. There's a link right on the front page. Um, we bring you this stuff for free every week, uh, both Thrilling and the Nerdist Writers panel, and uh, it, would, it would mean a lot to us if you would show your support by supporting us with your money. Thanks so much. Uh, here's the theme song, and then we'll talk about some Mad Men. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Again, thank you for having us. We're here in the uh, Mad Men offices with uh, several Mad Men writers. Why don't we go around 
uh, starting here with Matthew, and you can introduce ourself yourselves and tell us what you do on the show. Maybe tell us also what, you know, we're here to talk about season five, so what uh, has your name on it in season five? Really? <laughs> uh, we can um, assume. We can assume. I'm your Matthew Weiner. I'm the creator and executive producer of the show of Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Erin Levy. I'm a writer, co-producer. And which episodes did you uh, have oh. a hand in or have your name on it in season five? Do you remember? Tea Leaves and Dark Shadows. Right. Uh, I'm Maria Jacques Maton. I'm an executive producer. I'm Andre Jacques Maton, and I'm an executive producer as well. And our name is on uh, fees and commissions. But you have to realize their name, uh, these people's uh, commissions and fees. These people's, <laughs> commissions and fees. <laughs> these people's names are on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single episode of the show is constructed in the writer's room. Um, the stories are developed in the writer's room. The outlines are beat out in the writer's room. The drafts come in and get notes in the writer's room. And uh, Maria and Andre uh, run that when I'm not there and often when I am. And Aaron uh, has been a writer on the show for three years now. This will be your fourth year. Mm-hmm. And contributes also of course they're i mean basically and everybody's name those those producer titles are are writers Mm -hmm. so they're literally on every episode yeah i think uh, aaron when you were on the podcast before you talked a little bit about the way the show works and the way stories are constructed um but you know i think we can get a little more specific now in talking about this most recent season um you know what what did you guys exit season four with in your brains? What did you enter the writer's room with uh, coming into season five? And uh, what was it? If you can recall. I know it was we a long totally time recall. ago. We're, we're having this problem right now with season six. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, we're in that part of the season that's the actually the worst part of the year. What is the worst uh, part of the year? The worst part of the year, of the year is uh, when you come back and... I usually have some kind of like you know fever dream that uh, decides what the next thing we're going to do is, and it's based on where we left off, but not exactly where we left off. And you know, with season four was a was a journey uh, in Don's singlehood and his sort of like the aftermath of his divorce and the punishment and like life that he was living in, and then uh, you know his sort of like attempt to become a better person maybe to, to take responsibility on some level for what had happened to him but then the business fell apart and um i mean he met this great woman dr Fay, and we really ended the season with him sort of deciding to start fresh mm-hmm. and uh and go and uh, ask megan to marry him so when we came back the issue of the season right away was you know what is their marriage like? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a really interesting question to come into the season with. I mean, and it's something that it felt like as far as the storytelling, what kind of the answer snuck up on us uh, in, yeah, in a really good a, way. Oh, good. good. Um, you know, tell, tell us how you guys decided to approach that question. What, what was thrown around? What was thrown out? What was, you know, how did we you... We can never tell you what was thrown out because we're still, we're still going to use it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I wondered about that, too. We are, we are Eskimos. <laughs> Every part of the animal will be used. That's terrific. And you hear that a lot on, you know, all kinds of shows. Well, I remember one specific incident uh, early on in the season... Um, Matthew usually calls us, uh, you know, before the writers all get into the room and, and sort of says, here's what I'm thinking, here's what you should research, here, you know, what do you think of this or that? And one thing that he said was, you know, Don's going to be married to Megan. And, and I remember saying, uh, you know, well, 
what's that marriage going to be like? And he said, well, who's to say they're not happy? Because being a female of a certain age, I automatically assumed marrying a younger woman, of course it was going to be a disaster. So that was one thing that was really interesting, yeah. um, you know, to start thinking about what's the story that you tell about a marriage that probably the audience is thinking is, a, is you know, completely impulsive, which it was, um, and, and, and doomed to failure. What's it going to be like to tell the story of that marriage ending up being good for Don. Mm-hmm. So that was very exciting to come in and, and you know, to have that yeah. sort of as our jumping off point. I think that it also sort of raises the question about, you know, where do you wring drama from a happy marriage? Well, I think that's the funny thing about it is the surprise is that Don is in love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> sure, after knowing him for four seasons. And I think right. we, we yeah. decided right away, too, that, like, the audience was, of course, saying, well, if this relationship goes through, and you have to remember, in the future... You know, with Netflix and everything, people will watch the, you know, Don proposed to Megan in Tomorrowland, and the next episode, will, she'll be singing Zooby Zooby Zoo. But there was 17 months off, and uh, not for us, but the, for the audience. And the idea was like, okay, so she comes back. So once you accept that they're married, which we sort of delayed as we were telling that first episode, um, well, she's got to find out about Dick Whitman, and she, and she knows all of it. And it was kind of a situation where I think the audience is like, well, what's the story going to be, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, I was oh, talking yeah. about being happy. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> being in love. Being in love. I mean, the real, the real, the, the, the thing that came out of the room was I was for us to present the idea that there was a problem in this relationship, and it was sort of based on its inception, which was the impulsiveness of Don and Megan. She's that kind of person, also, and that her devotion to him was important to them being soulmates Mm -hmm. and her belief in the future. And I loved sort of like hearing the audience week to week, like wondering what was wrong, what was wrong. And, you know, you get to faraway places and he's on his knees to her and you're like, well, he really loves her. What's wrong. And we, you know, I kept saying, you know, what's wrong is that he's not in control. Yeah. Hmm. That's fascinating. And also that he, you already knew the audience had been told what was wrong. I mean, I think that there was like a reaction to the scene in the first episode when Don's leaving and he says to Peggy, uh, can she go yet? And you're right away that kind of like t- twists in your stomach like, <laughs> oh, she works for Peggy, but Peggy works for Don, but mm-hmm. she's his wife. Like, what's the dynamic? And you're like, oh, he's in control of this woman's life. He's got her at work, you know, and then I think it was we, we wanted her to get to I wanted her originally to, to fail at advertising. Mm-hmm. And realized that she wanted to do something else. And I think Saltzman or someone in the room was sort of said, like, she should actually be good at it and still reject it. Because we knew the whole time that her independence and her pulling away from her not liking Arne Sherbert was the story of the mm-hmm. season. Right. And that, and that I think, was really... Oh, you said that. Oh, it was Aaron's idea. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. There's many seasons and many faces that have gone through that room. It's hard to remember who said what. Um um, I forgot what I was going to say, so there you go. Well, I think I, uh, that, that, you know, setting I her up. I remember that. <laughs> setting uh, up Megan as, you know, devoted to Don, obviously, but as a very different kind of character from Betty. Um, you know, a scene that jumps out to me, and I, I apologize, I don't remember what episode it was, uh, w- but when she doesn't, she won't cancel on dinner with the Campbells. Uh, seems like a real strong pushback. In such a subtle way. It's, uh, yeah, it's episode 
four and aired the third week. Mm-hmm. It's mystery day when they go over yes, to that the right. dinner party. Uh, but I think that's you know one of the first inklings we we get of her being this independent person. Um, but tell us about you know the arc of that character when you guys go into this season uh, and you're obviously you're plotting. It seems like around Don, you know what Don's going to be going through to an extent throughout the season. Uh, Megan still has to be her own person, I would imagine. You still have to come up with an arc for that character. Her independence is there was a mystery about Megan. There's a mystery about Megan for the audience. That's sort of this a story we're telling. Who mm-hmm. is she? Does the audience trust her? Does Don trust her? What is she after? What does she want? And Don, like the audience, never bothered to ask what she wanted. And Roger says in the first episode, they're all great girls until they want something. And that was really the story, is that she was going to, shock of all shocks, have a, have a, a desire for her life that her parents were going to remind her about halfway through the season. Uh, not even specifically that it was acting, but just that she had a desire at all. Um, what was the thing that they were saying? Like that they're, they're soulmates. Don and Megan are soulmates. They're one person, and that person is Don. <laughs> <laughs> What I love about the choices that we made was the fact that uh, Megan is a foreigner, which I thought was really mm. bold. Uh, you know, she sings in French. It's like, you know you're in trouble there. Uh, <laughs> and, I, you know, it's, it's, it's really unusual. I mean, it comes from her background. She's, she's Canadian herself. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we use that, I, I just think, is really is, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, she is certainly something other, right, than the other characters that we've met. Uh, and it feels uh, and talk to me a little bit about you know how you attack the decade as well. I mean that has to be part of the conversation in the room uh, where Megan feels much more representative of you know the era in which this season takes place than a lot of these characters who are either catching up or I think if you watch the show like season after season, you will see people enter who are part of the next part of the world hmm. when when the first time that Peyton List Jane Siegel walks through that office. You were like, with Joan, you're like, oh, this is another, this is the next kind of iconic sort of female figure. I mean, Joan is, I mean, we're not talking about average people here, obviously. It's, you know what I mean? It's, sure. And, and you sort of see that that wave comes. And then Megan is younger, and she has a different attitude, and she isn't judgmental, and she is more open, and she is more hopeful, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the problem of their relationship is that Don has this 50s way of thought. Mm-hmm. He wants her to do what he wants her to do, and she actually has her own mind. And because she was younger and grew up in a different generation, she goes after it. Mm-hmm. And she is sort of, I mean, it feels to me like she's dragging him into the contemporary world. Well, there was a question for us about, you know, I, I think it's easy to look at it and say, like, oh, this is a story about Don being out of touch. Um, that, it remains to be seen whether Don really is out of touch. Um, you know, I, a lot of the thesis of the show in the decade is, you know, go back and look at season, at season one and you will see every single thing that people think associate with the 60s is from the beat generation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff is from the 30s. And, you know, there's a sort of uh, quaintness to it, I think, because, you know, we don't know him and we don't know uh, the, the world. But our development of Megan was, like, let's unravel this mystery. <clears throat> let's unravel this mystery and let's start the – let's let the audience kind of be surprised by the fact that this woman has, you know, a desire. And, yeah, he's depending on her to keep him current – you know, the other big mystery was that the the audience, whether they realized it or not, did, Don was not working. Hmm. And you sort of 
it was happening, and I think people felt a little uneasy about it, but he was not doing anything. And when, when Cooper finally says you're on love leave to him, I think the audience is like, I knew it. I thought he wasn't working, you know? And then she's gone, and he doesn't even want to go to work. Mm-hmm. And he has to sort of, like, you know, convince himself that it's even worth going to work. Um, and then, of course, he, you know, there, there, there are compromises to the achievement. But when we had, you know, you want to talk about, like, we, we had, like, a thing for the whole season, basically, was about this – this success story, not in Don, not just in Don's marriage, which was a success for him, that he was really trying to make this marriage work and that he really loved this woman and what a twist. Um, but that the agency was succeeding mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Pete Campbell's ascension to this position of such importance was basically because you would see scene after scene, week after week, where he would come in and tell Don what to do, and Don would say, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk about some of these other big moves uh, that you guys made over the course of the season. Um, and, and you know, this this Pete Campbell ascension is one. And then, you know, the, the choice that um, Joan makes is another. Uh, but let's talk about Pete for a minute. There was a run of episodes <laughs> where he was getting punched. What was the plan for Pete going into the season? Um, you know, how did you guys approach this character as a growing character? You know, he's always been sort of a punching bag, but it was sort of literal this season. <laughs> well, well, Pete is personally my favorite character in the series. I, I think that Pete, people love to hate Pete, but he mm-hmm. is, to me, the person that you have, that I have the most empathy with. Mm-hmm. Because he's someone who was born in a certain social strata. And, and especially in this country, when you're born into that, sort of, you know, upper echelon of society, the social register group, there, there's an expectation and there's, uh, you know, from, there's, all, there's an expectation that you're going to succeed at a certain level and that you have certain things and that your life is great from the people that aren't in that level. Mm-hmm. And Pete is a person who's, you know, who's basically never going to be happy because his parents essentially told him, we gave you your name and what have you done with it? Now, that's a horrible thing to hear, right? Because no matter what you do, you're not pleasing the people that made you. And so he carries that wound. It's a very deep wound. And because of that, no matter how many heinous things that character does, I feel that you always have some level of sympathy for him. And probably, you know, you, on some level, most people can identify with that. Um, I uh, guess his breeding wasn't that good after all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not an acceptable job being in advertising. Absolutely. For not. that culture. Sure. For that, it's not. It's really not. It is like you know, earning money, whatever. He, you know, it's literally like the way a lot of people's attitude is about entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's really this is completely below them. Mm-hmm. But I mean. There's also, you know, we told this success story with him. Yeah, it's it's not all bad for Pete. I mean, he essentially assumes control of the agency, you know, uh, throughout the season. And he's really competent. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's the dad of the agency, if you will. He's the person, while Don is off in love and, and you know, being essentially irresponsible for a good part of the season, Pete's the one who's keeping things running. Mm-hmm. And I think that he takes a lot of satisfaction in that. But unfortunately, in his own personal life, he's un- he's unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um just going back to the the issue of success, there was something that we tried to do last season, which was to tell the story of success and how, in the end, when you're in a business and it succeeds, that it becomes every man for himself. And I think that the Jones story, you know, with Jaguar was was sort of the perfect embodiment of that because it allowed us to tackle an issue that is sort of controversial and a hot button to this day about uh, you know about 
prostitution and women in the workplace and the currency of sex um, in a way that nobody really ended up getting hurt, you know? Hmm. In the end, Joan got her partnership, <laughs> Pete got Jaguar, Don got Jaguar. Uh, he may not have gotten it the way he wanted to, but he got it. Um, and that sort of propelled Don into, uh, you know, into the last, the final episodes where he basically decided that he was really going to go full force back into the business and, you know, in a very voracious and kind of slightly disgusting way, go after an even bigger fish. So in the end, everybody kind of went after what they wanted and it all came out of this, you know, this like sort of wave of success that the business was in. How, when you guys are, are putting together a season, and this is sort of you know, a nuts and bolts question, but when you're putting together a season, at what point does, you know, do these big moves come to you? Like, do you know where you want to end up with Don, or, or in all the partners for that matter, facing success, you know, despite the things they, the tragedies they've been through in the past episodes? Uh, so, sorry, the episodes the, preceding? The first two weeks of the season, we know that Don is going to be walking away from Megan on that commercial set. We know that the partners are going to be standing on the second floor. We know that Lane's dead. All that happens before uh, uh, even a story is broken. Really? Yeah. And we also don't know exactly what episode the Joan thing's going to happen mm -hmm. to 11, 12. We, we don't know. We don't know if it's going to happen in the same episode where Lane goes. But, you know, it's yeah. uh, ideas come out. I have a bunch of ideas. The room has a bunch of ideas. And a structure is established. And it's different every year. Sometimes it's a V. Sometimes it's a more traditional, like, you know. But the episode 13 has been the climax one year. Sometimes it's a denouement. Uh, you know. But just back to Pete, for example. Pete's story with Beth was um, he tells you what his journey was in that last scene in The Phantom. Or second to last scene or whatever. Mm -hmm. Which was... Uh, we decided from that first shot when you see him on the train that he switched lives with Don. He did not want to be in the suburbs, and that was very important to him. And he has been pushing against this door to be successful and responsible and admired and powerful f since we met him. And it opened, mm -hmm. and he thought he was going to be different. And it actually, he was so vulnerable to Beth and when he finally got to the end of it and she, her, her, she was erased and he could sort of confess as another person to her, he basically said, like, I did this for one reason, but the truth is I did it because I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see throughout the season is this frustration of someone who has been given what they want, which is the story of success. That is the conflict of success is how come I'm not different? It, it's sort of, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story, and I think we've gotten to see this with, with Pete the whole time. Um, you know, if we reframe the narrative of the show, he absolutely has this very strong and, and direct arc. Um, and there is this thing of he'll never be satisfied, right, because of his upbringing and all that. Um, but I wonder how the, how the choice to dramatize this journey is made. And, you know, obviously this applies to any of the characters, but I think Pete's a good example because it is a direct sort of uh, storyline. But, you know, 
You mean like how does a story get picked? I mean, a story is a story. Here's a Pete story. Pete <laughs> well, is a, a, a Pete doesn't have a driver's license. Don't forget mm-hmm. that. Oh my God, he lives in the country. Oh my God, Pete <laughs> needs to get a driver's license. That's funny because he's such a native New Yorker. He can't drive. He goes to get his driver's license, and in the middle of this carnage, he sees this 17-year-old high school student, and he becomes interested in her as if he is not his age or married or anything. And she becomes a fantasy to him. And in the meantime, he is also socially advancing. You know, we patch things up with Don, and then there's everything starts to come out of it. This is really how the process works. And all of a sudden, Maria. This is what people want to hear. Yeah, Maria, <laughs> Mar- and Maria says something <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know tr- tr- why can't Don go over there? Why can't they go as married couples? You know, and then, and, and then Aaron says something like, like, uh, um, you know, Pete and Don, you know, Don, the one thing Don always hated was living in the suburbs. <laughs> but Megan's going to make him do that. And then it becomes Andre says something like there's this, you know, w- what about when Don, you know, sees that how happy Pete is? And it became this moment of like, get them in that whorehouse with that client and let's see <laughs> Pete go and, and, and let's see Pete go and have sex with that woman. And let's see Don not do it because he's married. Not that, Don, not that we've ever seen Don sort of do that socially, but it became this thing of like working Pete up to, I have nothing was really, which was one of the last things to happen in the development right. of that episode. Right. Hmm. Um, I think there was a couple drafts already before I Have Nothing came out, and it went in and out of the script. Mm-hmm. But that's how a story gets developed. So this is an episode with a really strong Pete story. And, mm-hmm. and Lane wanting to be ambitious and, like, I don't want to be involved in England, and his wife's always being ambitious for him. And all of a sudden they're in this great, you know, she forces him to meet this guy, and all of a sudden he's an account man. <laughs> but he has no idea what he's doing. And Roger, don't forget, Roger has no power, but Roger sort of gives – what I think is one of John Slattery's best scenes ever in the history of the show, this this professor emeritus of advertising where he tells Lane how to take a client to dinner. And then all of a sudden it starts to emerge, oh, my God, we're doing a movie uh, about friendship at work and, and the expectation that we're all friends at work, but, of course, we aren't hmm. or, what, or Pete isn't. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, then you get comedy out of it, and Frank Pearson talks about, you know, right, that, that he had chewing gum yeah. on his penis, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Did she just take it out and forget it? You know, she put it there and forget it, and it, we just sort of work around those things. That's literally how it happens. And then there's like, well, who else has a story in here? Mm-hmm. Ken has a story. There was one thing in that episode in particular, which is worth the audience, I guess, knowing, which is that we had the story for Roger, and it didn't really have any finish to it. And the idea that that Pete, a little bird, had told Roger about Ken's writing mm-hmm. and that Roger, in all of his bitterness, would step on Ken's throat and say, like, this job is great. If you don't want to work here, don't work here. And uh, Vic Levin had been in advertising and basically told us that when he got caught, like, doing creative work there, they're like, hey, you know, we're not here as a safety net for you. This is a career. And all of a sudden, we were like, well, here's a chance for us to crush Ken <laughs> And, and for Roger to show that he's still not happy, uh, that, that he's bitter about it, you know, as a former writer. <laughs> and, um, and it all sort of evolved into this short story of Ken's at the end of the episode, which to me is like, in a strange way, a, a, like a high point of the season. This, this sure. like, and we're lucky enough that we have actors like, you know, Aaron Staten, who come in and deliver every week, and all of a sudden you, you focus a story on them. And the idea that Ken understands 
Pete's pain made it even more like powerful to me. So that's how stories get developed. And the most amazing thing about the writers' room and the people in this room in particular is that they are constantly trying to make it better. And also, I have a lot of dumb ideas about how I think the stories should be told, and I get talked out of them. I really do. I mean, that's the thing. He, you know, Matt makes it sound so easy. <laughs> I, it's it's so difficult, yeah. and and the strange thing is, it becomes increasingly difficult, and and uh, you know that's the thing about having a successful show, mm-hmm. and having done sixty five shows is that, you know, there there's such a high standard of storytelling that's you know that's set that. It, there's so much second guessing that goes on, so much anxiety goes on in 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 that room that it's really it's 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 a painful process. It really can, is. Can you recall any specific challenges to putting together this season? I can. <laughs> um, episode no eight. hesitation. No, just because I mean <laughs> I forget everything. I, I have to say, like most of the seasons, there wasn't there was an, an episode that was so difficult that it practically put me into tears but the one that was really hard for me last season um and, and it came out of you know just getting the room to uh to sort of agree that this was a worthy story was the episode where megan decides she's going to tell don that she's quitting to become an actress mm-hmm. and um that was a really really difficult story break it took weeks and weeks and weeks probably longer than any other <laughs> any other episode of all of the seasons and, and Andre and I have been on since episode two of season one. Um, and I think that there was a lot of personal uh, the writers writers on any show, the characters become human beings to you. They're not Absolutely. constructed. They become people. And there was a lot of personal feelings that that the individual writers in this you know put onto that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, some of us felt that you know, maybe it was not a worthy, worthwhile profession for her to want to go be an actress, that it was silly or whatever. Other people thought that, of course, it's, she's a creative, she's an artist, of course she's going to want to do that. You know, there was a lot of discussion about what it meant to Dawn and whether or not it was a rejection of Dawn or, you know, why was it such a big deal? And so that story break became incredibly difficult, um, not only for that reason, but that was, I, I felt like, where, you know, where we sort of kept getting stuck. Um, but in the end, all of those, you know, all that discussion and all the yelling and shouting and then the you know the storming out of rooms or whatever that happened during that that you know month or so ended up you know gelling into this amazing episode which i have to say when when i saw the cut i had forgotten how powerful that kind of storytelling could be mm-hmm. and i remember watching it and we were on hiatus at the time and going to andre in the other room and saying oh my god i was worried about this episode and i think it's it's just like the one of the best ones we've ever done on the show so I remember we had like a huge problem when we were blanking the other woman with the Joan, the Joan aspect of it, and like how do you tell the story and is it just straightforward if we do it a certain way? And then Semi, like after a lot of debate, Semi Chellis came up with the idea that it had already happened, mm-hmm. and then um, okay, well, so that how do you show that? And there was like a lot of debate on like um, how how do you inform the audience that this did already happen and matt actually wound up talking to one of the editors and coming up with a solution for that hmm. um besides just just sh- the it was like the same taking off like oh the necklace that's yeah. what it was yeah but the whole flashback thing came out of the room and i remember yeah. walking in there because it was an unsolvable problem uh don had to pitch to the jaguar people 
and we had this great pitch that we've been working our asses off on. And in fact, we didn't even have the pitch completely nailed down, but we knew that Don had to show that he was back at work for the irony to work, and it had to be amazing. Good luck with that. That's already a problem. That's already a problem. Uh, number two is, and we went out of our way. Faced. Well, it's a, we went out of our way not to show him pitching the entire season. Mm-hmm. So at least that would be. I mean, he gave that little speech at the end of episode ten where he's like, "We're going to roll up our sleeves and get right. to work." But him actually like selling this product and like it, and us knowing that it was personal to him was great. But Joan sleeping with the guy had to happen before that pitch. So if you'd already seen Joan sleep with the guy, you basically the pitch. Well, who's going to even listen to it? Right. It means nothing. It's meaningless. And so I think that one. I came into the room and they said, "What if it's already happened?" And they sort of pitched to me the way it happened, and I was like. You know, and, they, and they're all sitting there like, and they already have been through every permutation, which I have not. So they have to sit there and watch me go through every permutation, right. which I can do pretty fast, actually, because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I had sort of been there myself and tried not to live with the problem but was anxious about it. <laughs> and then I went down and talked to the editors, and I was like, how much can we load this thing up to, hmm. to really, really let it know. And in fact, the rough cut of the episode was one of the only episodes last year that I actually showed to my son, Martin, who's in the show. I mean, they're old enough, he's old enough to watch the show, but I really don't show it. My, my wife sees them, but I really don't show the rough cuts hmm. to anybody other than the writers. And, um, and I said to him, uh, uh, do you, you know, did you understand what happened? And then afterwards, of course, like I'm like, this is not a good focus group. He's really, he's really smart. I was a little nervous right. about it, but I mean, to think that I like actually was anxious about. That's the funny thing is the show has this reputation for like subtlety and so forth, and I have clarity problems for sure. But I really want people to understand it, and I overdo it sometimes. And um, the writers are very good at like having me back off on it. But I want to say one more thing about like the, the solutions that were solved. Yeah. That are the really the hardest thing always is the beginning. Mm-hmm. And Tea Leaves was the second episode of the show, but was written first, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because okay. um, because January was going to go have her baby. And it has this sort of like, we, we knew what was going to happen in one. The script was sort of in some form on episode one and two. We knew that it was going to be a two-parter. There was some form of it by the time we shot. Of course, there's like four or five scripts by the time we shoot the first episode in various stages. Mm -hmm. But there was a real thing about, okay, so we're doing this cancer scare. And so much of it sounded to me like, uh, here it goes. Mad Men's dipping their hand into the, you know, the the television hall of fame for like (laughs) the classic stories. And there was some point where it just twisted into another story where, where I was like, we get to show what his relationship is with Betty, this this Betty had gained all this weight off season and we were sort of like so preoccupied. This is the, one of the weird things we were so preoccupied about the audience understanding how this woman could have put on all this weight in six months or seven months. And no one even worried about it. Everybody knew that Don had married this 25 year old woman (laughs) You know what I mean? It was like I always felt she started like uh, eating the moment that he like rejected her in the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> at the end of tomorrow. Like, yeah, she like went home and was like, "There's Where a whole the season of that." Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was a really fun thing to sort of say like, "This is Betty Draper. Mm-hmm. She's in there. Sure. She's still in there, and she's just this thing has gotten out of control because she her anxiety is so overwhelming. Those are the kinds of things where you're like, it's an insurmountable problem." insurmountable problem some of it derived from real life and i'm not gonna lie i often set the problems and literally 
walk out of the room to either write the, the, or rewrite a script or edit or go down mm-hmm. to the set and come back and who knows the kind of like knockdown drag out fight that's gone on in that room <laughs> but well, I come ma- back and maybe the, we the can problem is solved the problem is yeah. solved and I and I have to say having had something like Maria and Andre's job on another show um they really solve the problem and they really sell it to me the right way they don't have it like done half-assed when I come in the room that's and right. we don't uh, it's not the kind of show where when I'm not there I don't like walk in and like say I hate all this stuff that you guys did yeah, I have to say, he Matt is very open. Thank you for giving us all that credit. That's very kind of you. But, you know, he, he makes the job, you know, it's easier because he is open to whatever we have to pitch. It's not like he'll come in and go, no, that's stupid. I hate to do it my way. I mean, he, he'll really listen and he'll, he'll you know, go through the options with us. And, and, you know, he's also great about riffing off of things that we come up with. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it's very rare that we've ever worked on something in the room, a story or even a direction, and, and you've left and come back and, and we presented something to you. You just said, no, this is none of this works. You know, there'll always be some kernel in there where he'll say, I like this, I like that, and then he'll just sort of start riffing off of it. And it's, it's, it's It's all good at that stage. But, <laughs> but, but um, I, I, I will tell you, when I come, I have come in with a finished script mm-hmm. that I have rewritten a couple of times and come in and said, none of this works. That I have done. <laughs> Yeah, but then we just rebreak it. But that's yeah. normal for any any series that we've worked on, at mm-hmm. least. Well, I'm curious though about you know when when Matt comes in with an idea and <laughs> leaves to go on work on the edit or the script or whatever. What is the conversation in the room uh, led by you guys that follows that? We only have a, a short amount of time. Let's get this yeah. done as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. how, many, how many writers do you, did you guys have last season? Or, and I have think this last season, season we had. Uh, counting the consultants, 13 all in, but not mm. everyone's in the room the sure. whole time. We start out with everyone by about episode three being in production. We're down to about six or seven. Mm-hmm. There's some people only work a couple of days a week. Mm-hmm. So at any one time, there's seven or eight people in the room. But once someone's off on script, someone's in prep, and someone's on set, sure. you're basically – there's sometimes where there's just five of them in there. And do you guys uh, – do the writers see their episode through? Do they – Produce like go to set and everything. Absolutely, oh, that's great. That's much, much to their dismay, sometimes <laughs> it's a very scary thing to be on the set because you're Hi. because they're there to represent me and to defend mm-hmm. the script. And there's a couple of factors in it. And I've had this job, but I know how hard it is mm-hmm. because I did it on The Sopranos. Number one is you didn't write everything in the script, so you're getting asked questions about things that you don't necessarily understand, mm-hmm. even though they've been explained. And so that's one thing you're defending shit that's not yours, and it's awkward. Because you don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that the director has a total agenda and is trying to represent the script and has talked to me. And you're sitting there and you know that that is not what I meant. <laughs> or, even worse, it's so boring to be <laughs> a, basically have all the responsibilities of a director and not be directing. <laughs> so they usually come back fat. <laughs> um, would you say that's an accurate representation yeah, that's of it, it. Yeah. Uh, this it's a constant state of anxiety because you're watching it happen in front of you and all you're wondering about is like and, and you know I, I, I know that they're there for me and that part of it is worrying about pleasing me but you actually you get there you're, you're there because your name's on the script or because you, you're a, an executive producer or producer on the show and you actually have a personal investment where you're just like ah oh, I don't think that's right Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone needs to tell the actors to do it like this. And there's no time. So, like, 
the director wants to like let them have one their way, and then the director has a couple of ideas, and they're all of a sudden they're moving on. You're like, we never got the Matt said that they wanted him to open the cabinet on the line. We never got that, or like he should open the cabinet on the line, or why isn't he looking at her? Or I thought he was going to be more emotional here. He shouldn't be angry. He should be kind. Things that simple, and you're just watching it, and we don't reshoot a lot, and you're kind of like, oh, uh, how was it today? Um, I don't think anybody got hit by a car, but, you know, it was... (laughs) (laughs) I had... Oh. Yeah. Sorry, ahead. I had an interesting thing that happened, and whoever works with Slattery has this too, but John Hamm directed my episode. So usually you're going to the director and you're saying, like, I think, you know, this actor should do this or this, whatever. But sometimes that's John Hamm. Like, he he's also <laughs> plays Don Draper. So I, I had to be, like, a little bit more cautious in my words, but he made it easy. But it, that, that's just like, that's like there's a whole other layer to it. <laughs> it, is really being a, it is really being a producer, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. It is really being a producer. Whatever people think that job is, that the, the writer producer in the, the producer and the writer producer title is when you're and they go to every meeting like hair makeup there are shows where That's people great. don't even participate in this stuff anymore oh, I know. <laughs> um, uh, hair makeup you know uh, and and this year this last year too i tried to involve everybody in editing if i could also oh, which is tough for me because that's really like where i where my where my pants are down so i kind of want but i feel like everyone should leave the show you know we only have two more seasons of the show i want everyone to leave the show who uh, with with the skills to go and do their own thing. That's unbelievably valuable. Let's talk for a second about this uh, structural choice. I mean, you guys did play these these filmic structure games, uh, as in revealing, you know, that Joan had already slept with the Jaguar guy. Um, this triptych episode, right? Uh, the Peggy, Roger, and then the Don and Megan Faraway story. Places, yeah, yeah. Uh, when did the structure arrive in that episode? Do you guys recall? I think it was pretty early on. I know that we talked about the three stories, or at least two of the stories, particularly the Howard Johnson story. Um, we, we, set out, we set out to do the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, three different things. The inspiration came from that movie, Le Plaisir. Yeah. Um, which, well said. What? <laughs> Le Plaisir. <laughs> it's a Max Ophuls movie yeah. with, mm-hmm. uh, based on uh, three or four, actually, Guy de Maupassant stories. It has a narrator in it, and... It has a very sort of intense shifting point of view, hmm. and um, we sort of like set it down like here's a challenge. Can you figure this out? But I have to say, you know, didn't you guys write seven twenty three? I mean, we have done episodes that have oh, sure. uh, all yeah, kinds yeah. of structures on. It. We've done, you know, we live on the flashback. They're all over things, the mislead, the sort of like when time shifting, all these other things, and we always sort of try to make each thing an independent movie. Uh, you know, in addition to t- telling the continuous story. But that one was a really, really high degree of difficulty. Mm-hmm. And one of the great ironies was after we pulled it off, we turned it into the network. And we were all kind of – I'm not going to lie. When that script – when it was done, we were very proud that it, that it, that it had worked because yeah. I was like, worst case comes to worst. If we can't make this work, if, if you guys cannot figure out how to, like, make this outline work and it doesn't translate into a script, we will just cut this up and, like, do it like a regular story. And But it has to be – it has to – it has to demand that it be told this way. You have to be in Peggy's mind, then you have to be in Roger's mind, then you have to be in Don's mind. And the overlapping part of it, where you realize like two-thirds of the way through that it's the same day, that stuff was all like very worked out. There was, you know, Semi had this thing about the map that was going to be through it, mm-hmm. and these conversations that were repeated, and Don Cooper. and Megan in the hallway. What? Yeah. Cooper sitting in the in the lobby. <laughs> yeah, Cooper sitting in the lobby as people pass through. Oh, everybody's got some place to go today. And the notes that we got back from the network, not that we get that many notes, but were, is there any way 
to tell this is to to cut these things together. Really? And we're like, and I was like, <laughs> do you know how hard that was? We do that every that's, week. That's what's so great about the show is that we can experiment. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not afraid to to make certain choices, and it's really it's really liberating for us. It's you know, as writers, it's just and incredible. challenging. Yeah, and the audience deserves it. It, it, it did feel, you know, like the right thing at the right time in the season. It didn't feel like a stylistic choice just for the sake of making a stylistic choice. Did you want to see Roger on acid and intercut it into other stories? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That the, the, the ambiguity of the passage of time in that story is would be just destroyed. I mean, that the hardest part about that was figuring out where to put the commercial breaks. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's actually uh, something we should talk about just for a second, this kind of structural uh, question. You guys are working in a basic cable, which does have commercials. And, you know, when we talked to Vince Gilligan, he talked about how they don't write strictly to the commercial breaks, though it is in their mind. How do you guys tackle that? I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn, but we don't even think about it. Really? We write We write the episode as... It would be in our head that someone's going to watch it off the DVDs or, mm-hmm. you know, online or on Netflix or whatever. As We think of them like little individual movies, and we don't at all worry about where the commercial breaks go. But perhaps Matt does. No, I never worry about it. And, in yeah. fact, I will not let people use them because they can be your friend. Absolutely. They're um, easy you know, time, time, time passed. You know, I do not let people use them. We do not use them for anything. It will see, be seen in its final form, which is all together, and it's a painful thing at the end of the development when when the episode is completely finished. I have very talented editors, Tom Wilson, Chris Gay, and uh, uh, Leo Trombetta, and um, Blake McCormick, who is our post-production supervisor and a producer on the show. They pitch to me where they think the commercials go. <laughs> and... Um, trying not to ever have a chunk of the show go under five minutes. And the network has this strategy, which I kind of um, used to resent and now kind of embrace, which is exactly what you think it is. It's, I call it the late, late, late show formula, which is <laughs> you give them a huge chunk of the movie and then break it up every five seconds once you're into the story. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, uh, we have these like, you know, 15 or 16 minute first acts um, you know, a 15 or 16 minute chunk of a show uh, on on a commercial station is just such a luxury. Yeah. And then my challenge is to not like let the show fall into little pieces where you <laughs> so you forget what you see. I don't want to encourage people. They're entitled to pay their bills. I don't want to encourage people to use the DVR. But, you know, I also, as is well documented, documented, you know, basically left the show when they were talking about adding more commercials mm-hmm. to it. It's the, it, the success of the show is related to how long it is. We are still, we are almost five minutes longer than a network hour right now. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. You guys get an, a nice a nice little act. Well, when we that. started, really it was, cool. you know, it wasn't gracious. They had no advertisers at all. Mm-hmm. And, and they had no place to run them and nobody to buy them. And they let us do that. And they saw HBO as their competition. And then once they had this one hour a week to sell ads in, mm-hmm. they wanted to exploit it as fully as possible. And they still only have one hour a week per you know, they, they've never had two shows on the air at the same time. So there's a lot of pressure on that. And they're entitled to pay for the show. Um, uh, but it's a, 
we, we do not pay any attention to the commercials. Let's talk for a moment uh, about a couple of these other characters and the choices I, I, you I made. I will say the other thing about yes. being on commercial TV is we can't – it's not even TV mature. It's TV 14. Oh, so really? we can't show any nudity. Um, there are very specific things that we are allowed to say and not say. Uh, when you watch FX, you are seeing TV mature. <laughs> yeah. We can say shit a couple of times an episode. We can say asshole. Um, what can I say on the podcast? You can say whatever you like. You can't say the, you can't say the N word. Uh, you can't say cock. You can't say. They gave yeah, me yes. that. They sent me an they email with the words in it, and you're yeah. kind of like, wow. Let's give them a That's list great. of what we can't say. Yeah, and I was kind of like, you wrote, around you wrote all this stuff in it, and you immediately start it's asking them, you know, like, well, I, I've got more creative ways to use these words. You're sure we can't use it. And part of the story of the se- of, of the 60s is about the language loosening up yeah. and becoming more crude, and we're trying to tell that story, and the, they bleep it, and we're I'm fine with it. It'll mm-hmm. be there on the DVD. You get it. I think someone once said to me, they're like, I know you can't show nudity. I know you can't show sex. I know you can't swear. But I feel like people are fucking and saying fuck you to each other all the time on the show. <laughs> and I was like, I think that was that. That's that, a testament that, to the writing. Uh, it's you know what? I'm not, comfortable, I'm not comfortable shooting real sex scenes anyway. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't like. I think you get different kinds of actors. I mm-hmm. think it's awkward. Um, and um, I don't mind nudity or anything. But I think the moment right before and the moment right after are really what people are interested in seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, being completely unrelated to this, I totally realized that that Megan thing where uh, I have to say it because writers are obsessed with credit. The Megan thing where, where we realized Megan would be good. I said that to you separately. Saltzman thought of that completely independent of me, so he totally gets credit for that as well. Oh my god! I know. I've been yeah. thinking. Oh, I just thought of that. that. I think there's some. There's. All I can tell you is this is the whole thing. Is like I have I, to say. I, I get credit. I get credit for. I get credit for a lot of stuff on the show. I don't know what's mine and what's not mine. Mm-hmm. I know when I'm right that I end up writing a lot of the, the, the dialogue, but that is not really what the what the show is about. Uh, all, and it's certainly a percentage of what it is. The, we get in a state of shared, you know, and people uh, of shared credit. And I think it's just, it would be just as mysterious for people to understand how much that I do as it would be for them to understand how collaborative it is. Mm-hmm. And it is so collaborative that it is actually hard to imagine that this many people can function as an organism and create something seriously. And, you know, credit becomes a big issue and there's awards and things like that. And I'm just telling you, you know, anyone who wants to function in a writer's room, the, the amount of things that you like on this show that come from a list of more than five people would upset you. The idea of authorship is so um, destroyed that it, 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 I don't think people can do, I don't think it's even commercially palatable people. They want to know, you know, who's the director, who's the guy who, right. who's the woman who's the author of this thing. It's just not, I can't even look at it and say yeah. what it is. And, and this is something we've heard from, you know, the showrunners and the, the people in charge of the best shows around that they are incredibly collaborative uh and everybody has a voice it's not I, I everybody has a voice but i mean everybody is literally getting is, is literally putting their stuff in the show That's great. i mean it's right. constant and uh having been again on you know having had aaron's job mm-hmm. i can tell you that it's becomes very important for people to know how significant your contribution is and at the same time you come you come to work every day and you don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. All you think about is like Don. 
and like you know and it, are Maria and Andre happy with me? Because that's way more important than, than you know. And all we think about is Matt happy with yes. the story. <laughs> is, is our general happy? Right. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say, is Matt happy with the story, though? Not, is Matt happy with us? Is Matt happy with the room? It's, it, you know, you guys are serving the story in a way that, you know, uh, not every writer we've talked to does. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, you know, well, it's not really a question. Well, he Just likes an observation. us, so we don't have to worry about it. I would, I would, <laughs> I would curl up into a pill bug and, and die if I thought that they were just trying to get me home. I really would. Yeah. It's not – everybody has uh, – one of the great things about – Maria and Andre uh, and I have known each other literally one year less than I've been married. Uh, that's how long I've known them. Wow. Erin uh, had her first job on the show was was a, a a student of mine. Jonathan Igloo was a student of mine. There is a a um, comfort level of communication that where you don't feel like your job is on the line every second. I don't. And there's an encouragement factor of like when you see the boss come in and take your idea and put it in the way you pitched it. It encourages you to keep working, and that's what I was trying to say about like you know the authorship th- thing. And so everybody's here to serve the show, and we all benefit from it. And everybody has gotten to have title bumps and salary bumps, and hopefully participate in the financial success of the show, and have what TV writers never have, which is yeah. security. It's it's really impressive, uh, and I'm curious actually about. Putting together the room in the first place or bringing new people in, and I'm sure you guys can speak to this, you know, what, what do you look for? What, how do those interviews go, uh, you know, once you're past the, here's a good sample? Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that we look for. A good sample is really important. I don't want to discount that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a good sample, in our opinion, isn't really a good sample in everyone's mm-hmm. opinion. To us, it has to be a well-written script that has to say something unusual that we haven't read before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we look for a certain level of feeling and emotion in the storytelling that isn't, um, that's deeper than just, well, I set up this problem here and, and you know, it's something everyone can relate to and we're going to solve it this way right. at the end. Um, we definitely look for people that have an interesting background. Um, you know, when you're putting together a room, you want different voices and you want people to bring their personal stories, at least on this show. Mm-hmm. Actually, on all the shows we've worked on, even Star Trek, you wanted people who, you know, the story comes out of the writer's individual experience. It's, it's right what you know. So you, we always look for someone who's got a background that's different than the other writers on the show, someone who might have a different point of view, um, you know, someone who's not afraid to talk about the dirty secrets in their closet or what hurts them or what mm-hmm. keeps them up at night. Because someone who's broken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andre always says that writers are the most damaged people. And, I mean, there's a fine line because you don't want someone who, you know, is, in, you know, is so damaged that they yeah. can't function in a group. Right. Because a big part of it is playing well with others. But, you know, we, we always look for people that... Uh, you know, and writing is more important than being broken. There's a, <laughs> the intersection of those two things, uh, you know, all the samples come from broken people, but only some of them can write. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> and only sure. some of them can actually be in a room uh, and be adults in that room. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very important quality. Absolutely. Um, it seems like this show, more than many others, is a show in which the writers' rooms, the writers on, in the room sort of get to comment on what it is they do 
Uh, you know, you're writing about people who are creative, who are writing very often. Uh, how much of a conversation is that in the room? Does it come up at all, or is it just something that's there? You mean is our is is the the ad agency like a like a TV show? <laughs> yeah. Do you, are you it's tempted constant. to you are you tempted to use the ad agency as a stand-in for you know the experiences you guys have in writing? Not as a stand-in. I mean, look, we are writing about creative people. Mm-hmm. We're also writing about business people. Yeah. And our profession as television writers, uh, you know, in some ways is similar to advertising because you have the creatives who are interested in, in getting their ideas across in a unique and interesting and, and surprising way. And you have the business people, the account executives and studio executives who are about making money. And in the end, a television show is a business. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always going to be a fight between the creative and the financial capacity. But as Matt, yeah, you know, very eloquently very said, they have to pay their bills and make the show. So at some point, there has to be like a, a truce. And so, of course, those issues that we deal with as television writers are going to come up in a show that's about advertising. Sure. And my my whole thing is like this is the, what I always resent is this sort of ivory tower, you know, proclamation, you know, depiction of us. You know, my, all of the stuff that I stand up for. All the battles that I have fought with the network and the studio and won were all about making the show more popular and more financially successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been right on a lot of them. And I didn't invent them. I was literally like, you know, I remember saying to AMC, like, I- I've been in TV longer than you have. And, you know, <laughs> this is the way HBO did it. I'm positive. And this is what David Chase did. And keeping it a secret, not telling people that, that Dom was married when we were promoting the pilot was going to mean that anybody who saw that pilot would go and tell people, like, oh, my God, I saw this amazing story. So those are totally counterintuitive things. But I was like, I was on The Sopranos. I saw, like, people, uh, it takes a long time, but... You know, people really, really start to have a cult-like interest in it. Um, and use yourself. Don't try and second-guess the world. But rather than even talking about the, that, um, I think it's creative people, whether they like it or not, use their lives in their work. There's nowhere else to go. Um, you know, one of the great things about having... 13 interesting people in there is you've got 13 interesting lives and we believe in the specific so um, the specific nature of like can I turn my experience with you know uh, of creating a TV show can I turn my experience of being like a staff writer you know uh, mm-hmm. into 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 you know something that happens in the ad agency yeah I mean that's why I picked it I I've never worked in advertising my father is a neuroscientist I like have I'm 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 from Hancock Park, you know. I like you know. I'm Jewish. I mean, there's like nothing that intersects with this show, <laughs> and so what is great about and probably mysterious and and intimidating to people on the outside is that this is all made up, <laughs> and um, that's the the great the, uh, the great thing about it is you know you're looking at our finished work mm-hmm. and it's it's. It's a very arduous process that involves getting rid of a lot of crappy stuff. Um, and you're hopefully seeing the best of what we have, you know. I wish I could end it right there. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> that was really well put. Uh, but I do have to ask you guys two quick things, uh, which Twitter has been asking about, in which uh, the first one especially, as I was watching the uh, fifth season for the second time, Ginsburg jumped out at me as this really fascinating and fun character. Uh, 
tell me about this guy. Where did he come from? When did he enter the conversation as new blood to bring into this season? I mean, he entered the, at the beginning of the season, like in the first couple of weeks, um, he came up. Actually, perhaps the first day. Mm-hmm. And then as it went on, Matt started like pitching dialogue for him and we all kind of like got into it and it just like exploded into this the character you see yeah i mean he's in and tea leaves is where he gets introduced and we didn't want him in the first episode but we wanted someone who honestly he comes from the history of advertising um these agencies eventually became integrated um first with jews and italians and then eventually with other kinds of people uh um there were some women, you know, and I'm talking about this kind of agency. There were agencies that were just guys like Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, although Ginsburg is a certain creative type, too, from writing point of yeah, view also. Absolutely. We all know, yeah. we all recognize this guy right away. And and the, the fun thing was pitching for him and then trying to find a human being who had that kind of energy <laughs> and that, that, like, borderline, like, egotism slash autism (laughs) he also came out of the idea of the period that creatives were starting to not dress like dawn they were starting to be different and he was younger um and and i think perhaps maybe that's where the first gem like germ of him came from yeah yeah i mean he he does he is like megan i think uh representative of a shift uh, not just in the business, but in the times. And uh, I didn't remember him coming in so early in that second episode. But when yeah, Peggy, yeah. Peggy yeah. interviews fascinating. Those, yeah, and those are a great series of scenes, uh, which I'll credit all of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing, I mean, obviously we have to talk about is uh, the the big decision to uh, kill off Lane. When did this become part of the conversation? Did you guys know it coming into the season? Uh, and also, Wait, someone... let me get my motorcycle out of here one second. <laughs> um, and someone brought up to me, and I, I think you already touched on this a little bit, that you know that happens in the penultimate episode, which you know sometimes things have things fall out this right. way. But was that a, a conscious choice too? The decision to get rid of Lane was really about how to tell this success story, and you know. In the off-season, I think about all the things that are going on in these people's lives and what will have happened in seven months. And we had heard a story about someone killing themselves at a, at a ad agency in this way years ago um, from Bob Levinson, who's a, one of our advisors, um, consultants, and, and really thinks like a writer uh, as, as much as yeah. anyone I've ever met in my life. Um, and he, the idea that the door was closed. And then when we started getting to the success thing, we just realized like Lane and that situation with how he got into the agency and the Cobra. And you, you know, remember the Cobra that was given to him in the, in the lawnmower episode. And you're always good at doing what you're told. And then having the Playboy bunny and, and his father hitting him. And we just reached this point where we're like, this man has nowhere to go with this agency. And he's probably underpaid. And, uh, Maria and Andre, when we first started talking about it, they were like, that's great, that's great. And then I think, I do think it was you. I don't know. I'm always giving credit. I'm pointing to Maria. Uh, um, I remember things different. It's incredible. I have a really, really good memory, and I'm terrible at this stuff. I have really good memory. And I'm, I seriously, I have like a scary memory, and I'm terrible at this stuff. I'm always wrong. And sometimes I just remember the person who told it to me, and I, and, and I don't even <laughs> know because I wasn't in the room. But everybody deserves credit for yeah. this. But there was a point where Maria said, you want to tell a story about success, 
we're going to structure the season so that if they get Jaguar, Lane will die. And this guy was so <laughs> oriented towards the money and, you know, and this whole thing with the Christmas bonuses and the, 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 the forged check and everything. I had very little to do with that. That was all worked out in the room and as the, the depth and, and forged, you know, in, in finding out how the ad agency worked and working backwards. What could we do to do this? What could we do to do this? What could we do to do this? Even the joke about him, I, I knew he was going to kill himself and I wanted him to kill himself in the Jaguar. That his wife had bought him a Jaguar and then he, that, that I came in with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the idea that it wouldn't start... <laughs> And it was troubling to me, too, because I really wanted him to kill himself in the office, which is with the story that we had heard. So I came in there, and they told me this joke about uh, – they told me this thing about it not starting, and I was like, I think that may be the greatest joke I've ever heard. <laughs> and we were just like, we've got five episodes to, to, to set up this joke. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's pretty much, you know, my memory of it. I know I don't know if I was the one who said whose whose idea it was to have that be, you know, the penultimate episode of the season, but what generally ends up happening is we talk so much in the first month of the show about what the sort of tentpole events are mm-hmm. um, that after a while a pattern sort of forms and, you know, at least in my head and in, you know, it ends up being told through me, even though it doesn't always come from me to Matt, because I end up being sort of the speaker of the house in there. Um, but with Lane, with the suicide, we did know that that was going to be the turning point of the season for, um, you know, for for really the agency and for the sort of emotional crux on a big picture. Yeah. Um, and it just had, it just had to come at that point. There had to be some payment for the incredible success of, of landing a car <laughs> and for it to be like the loss of this character who was beloved, even though he wasn't sort of always front and center on the series, mm-hmm. he really was sort of the, the person that was the underdog. And then came the right. challenge of making sure that throughout the season, we know we're going to lose this incredible character that's fun to write for. And we're going to lose one of the great actors I mean, it's like, right. you know, you write that guy into a scene, right. a family member, and you write that guy into a scene with one line. I mean, it's hard to explain, like, how these – it's a real person. It's not just, you know, Lane is a real person. Jared is a real person. And um, I did not want to waste that. Mm-hmm. I was like, if we're going to – because killing someone is instant drama. And we, I've gone out of my way to say publicly and in the writer's room, Don doesn't kill people. People don't die on the show. You get fired, you're dead. <laughs> and that's the interesting part of it. You know, Sal, they were like, they know that he's not dead, but he's dead. And, um, you know, they moved to a new agency and they lost all these people. That's, you know, that's the stakes mm-hmm. so that when someone leaves, it means something. And that... that uh, I just didn't want to waste it. And so it became the story right from the very beginning about Lane, you know, taking a risk with that, finding that guy's wallet and sort of living this sort of like risky, like depraved, you know, moment uh, with the picture and feeling guilty about that. And then trying to, to become an account man and, and teaching Pete a lesson and, you know, just literally like moving your way through the story so that, by the time he's in trouble, and I, it sort of picks up. I was terrified because it sort of picks up out of nowhere in episode 10. But I kept saying to people, like, while the season was going on, the people that I talked to who watched the show who did not write on the show, 
what, what do you think Lane's situation is? And they're like, oh, Lane's in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and they remembered it even just from the first episode, Absolutely. him having that conversation about his paying for the private school. Yeah. Everybody knew he was in trouble, so it wasn't out of nowhere. No, not at all. And, and it was touched on so lightly but so strongly. Part yeah, of that is, too, we don't impression. have Jared every episode. Like, Jared, yeah. Jared sure. is one of these actors who, like, was in, like, 80... Let's face it, he was Professor Moriarty. <laughs> he was Professor Moriarty. And he was also, he's, in, he's Ulysses as Grant. I mean, he has just been, yeah. like, he has in, always been in constant demand. It's hard. We, that, that becomes part of it. Just, like, sure. January's pregnancy and, you know... Uh, I don't know if you know, uh, Alison Brie, uh, you know, has another show that she's on <laughs> all <heard>. the time. <laughs> um, I know you guys can't tell us anything about uh, season six, but can you tell us some of the materials that have been recommended for the writers to look at? No. Not even that. <laughs> no. We're not speaking about anything. Yeah. Um, can you tell us that you're excited about it? We are definitely excited about it. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, part of the reason it's hard to do this interview at this specific moment is because we're talking about season six sure. in the room and it's going swirling in our heads. And, you know, we have some great stuff coming up and, um, you know, high stakes, drama, sex. I can say we do a lot of research. <laughs> it's a lot of research. All right. The, the, the Twitter will jump all over that. Uh, you know what? <laughs> Every season. There's some, yeah, there's some, there's some debate about, like, you know, I am going to hold on to this as tightly as possible. Um, uh, our, our S&M relationship with the audience will continue. <laughs> I don't know which is us is the S and which is the M. But um, I... I always just want to put myself in their place and say, like, please just give me something I haven't seen. Mm -hmm. Take me someplace I didn't go. Make it make sense. And um, now we're at a point where I think people just want to know what's the next phase in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is the last, the second to last 13, you know. So we really want to, um, you know, start. We're not starting the ending at all. And when doing the, that was a big decision, like to do the sixth season and to make sure that it wasn't all planned for for the for the finale, mm-hmm. and to just like treat it like we have we're doing a show about an ad agency and this is the first season of the show, which is what we do every year. That's great. Well, good. We can't wait, you guys. Uh, thanks cool. for your work. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks to your audience for listening to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com.